podcast was made possible by Thrive AP, a transition to practice solution for PAs, NPs, and the facilities that employ them. Thrive AP's educational curriculums accelerate skill application of advanced practice providers, improving outcomes, retention, and career satisfaction. Thank you to Thrive AP for partnering with our show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to White Coats of the Round Table. My name is Mike Asbeck, and I am not joined by John McDonald today. He's actually out on, we'll call it medical leave. He had a bit of an injury, and maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later. He's doing okay, but uh, his thumb is maybe a little bit worse for wear after a tool accident. So I'm flying solo today, but I thankfully do have a really great guest, and we're going to have a really exciting conversation about conferences and different ways that we can accelerate our careers using medical conferences as that tool. But before we get into that, I'd like to introduce the guest and talk a little bit about his background, and then I'll turn it over to him and allow him to give maybe a more thorough introduction. For listeners that have been with us for a while, you know that John usually prepares these very loquacious guest introductions that are maybe a little bit comical, a little bit corny. I'm not that person. So we're going to use a very generic and uh, straightforward introduction, but then we'll let Harrison fill in the gaps. So Harrison Reed is our guest today, and he is a critical care PA, educator, writer, and editor based in Washington, D.C. He has held senior editorial positions at multiple publications and currently serves as the clinical editor of the Journal of the American Academy of PAs. He is the recipient of the 2022 AAPA Publishing Award, and his writing advice and resources are found at harrisonreadwriting.com. Harrison, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. So just to give the listeners a little bit of a background, I know we've been on a bit of a theme lately with medical writing. And one of the reasons for that is medical writing, I think, is just a really wonderful non-clinical career path or side hustle because the barrier to entry is usually pretty low. It is something that people can do in addition to their primary clinical job. They can do it you know, in their off time. But it also does have the potential to become a full-time role. There's a lot of people that can actually do medical writing full-time, and this is a great option for people that may are, may need or are looking for remote work or just are simply looking to get out of clinical. So today, I want to take a little bit of a different um, take on it. Like I said earlier, we're going to talk about conferences as it relates to medical writing. But Harrison, before we do that, I know the the intro and the bio that I gave was somewhat brief. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Tell us about your background and your journey into medical writing. Yeah, I, I mean, I never really saw myself ending up as a career in in writing, and I don't know if I even have at this point. I still, first and foremost, kind of consider myself a clinician. You know, slots one, two, and three of my personality, like I think a lot of people in medicine. Uh, but I, I was raised by an English teacher, and so writing was always kind of a tool in the toolbox, if not something bigger than that. And I think that for me, it, w- it was almost mundane because it was the thing I was expected to do. I was expected to be able to express myself in writing. And I only later, as I kind of moved through the world, realized, oh, no, this is something that can actually get you some real mileage. Uh, when I got to college, I became a uh, newspaper reporter for the newspaper at my university, University of South Florida. And, um, you know, I was amongst all of these people who were planning to do this for a career. And I was still knocking out pre-med classes, trying to apply to PA school. 
and I could hang with these communications majors and these people who really wanted to be journalists. And I thought maybe there's something here in the cross section of these two things. Maybe the fact that this isn't my sole purpose to be a professional writer or communicator. Maybe I can take this this area of medicine or science that I like to focus on and use this other skill set and the value might be in the intersection. And I think that's kind of panned out because as I've moved through my clinical career, the writing keeps popping up. And whether it's getting published as a PA student and kind of getting the recognition from my program that that brought immediately, or whether it's just being able to write a really compelling cover letter for a resume, every single stage of my career, somebody seems to mention the writing. And as I've leaned more into that later in my career, I realized there's probably something here, not just for me, not just for someone who's been doing this their whole life, but can't anybody kind of harness this writing thing as a vehicle, especially in a field where we have all this knowledge, we have all these skills, and we often keep them to ourselves. So maybe using writing and publication as a vehicle to get outside of our little healthcare bubble or a little PA bubble or whatever your career or profession is, maybe that's where the value is. And maybe I can bring that to other people. And so lately, I've been a lot more focused on kind of leveling that field and not just being the guy, you know, sitting in his high horse, the the talented writer guy, and I can do this and you can't, and really kind of just breaking this down. This is a skill that anyone can do. And so I think that's kind of been my journey in a nutshell. Um, it's taken me on a little, you know, detour here and there, and I've used it to get into education. I've used it to do side jobs, and I've used it to edit medical journals and do these other things. Um, but ultimately, it's it's just been a vehicle. It's it's never been the destination. So with that, I my follow up question would be: How did you first get into it? It sounds like because of your parents and maybe the inculcation of writing at an early age, this was just always ingrained in you. But what what was your first publication? Maybe walk me through that. It sounds like it happened while you were still a PA student. Yeah, I mean, if you exclude all of the the news stories at uh, USF, uh, even if we're talking medical stuff, I, there was two publications when I was a PA student at Yale that really stood out. Um, the first one was for a medical journal. Uh, they a, a journal called Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine had done this call for people to cover symposia. So kind of right on topic here, right? There was basically a conference going on at Yale about HIV medicine, and they were basically asking people to go there and almost act like a reporter and cover it and write something for the journal. And I had been a reporter, so I was like, this is easy. Yeah, this is already playing into my strengths. So I showed up and I did that and got published and then got an invitation to be on the editorial board of Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine. So it was a, it was a foot in the door. Um, at the same time, a lot was going on in the world, and not to divert too much from our topic here, but um, you know, Trayvon Martin was killed in my hometown uh, of Sanford, Florida, while I was at Yale. And so uh, I wrote an editorial uh, in the Yale uh, newspaper, basically, about that and calling for justice and, and, and sort of throwing my hat in the ring for social causes, too. And so both of those happened in parallel. It's only looking back that I realized, like, oh, those were kind of big events for me because those are two things I do a lot now. I do a lot of clinical writing and I do a lot of, you know, social advocacy with my writing. And and so I think those were two starting points that, you know, interweave at times, but are also quite separate at times. And um, so, yeah, I think in in two ways, you know, those early publications definitely were a starting point and you can kind of trace a lot of my work back to those threads. 
So it sounds like in both scenarios, the barrier to entry was pretty low because they were looking for contributors. Is that accurate? I think what you'll find in most writing and publication is that the barrier is lower than you think. And editors and publications and pretty much anyone else out there is really hungry for anyone who can do something that's relatively solid from a writing or speaking or any other communication standpoint. And so, yeah, I think that intimidation factor is there because we look back as readers, as consumers, and we only see the final product. But the truth is, is there was a long path to get to a high quality product. And you're only seeing that tip of the iceberg and not all the work beneath the surface. So I think people overestimate how good you have to be walking in the door. I mean, being good helps, you know, having high quality drafts help, but it's not essential. It's not required. And it's usually not even the norm. So one of the inspirations for today's topic was you recently wrote a opinion piece for Doximity talking about the opportunities to bridge the publication gap for PA specifically, but because this is a show that really talks to all licensed healthcare professionals, we're going to make it maybe a little bit more broad. One of the things you said in that article that really was interesting is you talked about the publication gap in healthcare. So can you expand on that concept and maybe explain what you mean when you say a publication gap? Yeah, I mean, I'm usually talking about my own profession when I say that, um, but you're right. This probably applies to other worlds and other professions within the healthcare world. Um, but what I'm talking about is the fact that we have 150,000-ish PAs in, in the country at this point, and we don't have publications that represent even a fraction of that big group of people. We are not publishing at the same rate as other professions. And we're not publishing at a rate that uh, really exemplifies the amount of training, knowledge, expertise, impact, and influence we have on healthcare. Um, so what I mean by that from a numeric standpoint, I mean, even if you look at the people in the PA profession who are highly incentivized to publish, these are PA faculty, people whose ostensibly their promotions are based on this. Their jobs are in part justified by the fact that they're out there publishing about half of them have never published in their entire careers. Uh, the median is low single digits as far as number of publications. And frankly, the average is skewed by a handful of people that publish like crazy. Uh, so you have essentially a group of people who is supposed to be publishing like crazy, who doesn't, who have good reasons for not publishing. But what the effect is, is if you look at medical literature, if you look at just data on the healthcare workforce, you don't see PAs as much as you should. You have an underrepresentation of this profession that clinically usually punches way above its weight class. The number of patients we see, the number of jobs we hold, the number of fields that we are active in is very high, and yet the number of publications in which we appear is very low. So interestingly, as you're talking about that, I do think that it is applicable not just to PA but really across the healthcare spectrum. Now, granted, I think physicians probably have a, a much richer history of medical research and publication. I know in med school, they emphasize that quite heavily. But I just Googled it, and a 2013 study regarding physicians and publication and research indicates that only 1% of physicians devote more than 10% of their time on research. So I think this is a problem that is maybe more exacerbated in PA, and I would argue even NP, these newer professions that maybe have less of a history 
of um, publication research, but even just having less journal representation. But I think it's unfortunately something that we're seeing across the board. I'm sure there's many physicians or pharmacists that are working in large health systems that don't get protected time for writing or research. And really, a lot of the publications are maybe just falling on people that are in those academic settings. But as you say, stated, even there, things might be quite limited. So within that, if we have maybe a, a big gap where there's a lot of opportunity to publish, to use that to build your CV, to build your knowledge level, to build your expertise, but most, I think is a safe assumption, most are healthcare professionals are not taking advantage of that. What do you think we can do to address that? And maybe talk about medical writing and then we can shift and be more specific about conferences as a solution to that. Yeah, I think, I mean, in order to address a problem, you have to understand it first and foremost, right? So why is this happening? And you're right, like it probably is apparent in other professions as well. I think just to, to put a bow on on that last point you made, while I do think most healthcare professions probably underpublish, some of them are better at uh, sort of representing themselves, I guess, in literature. And so, like, for instance, I've just noticed in my research and, and reading over the last whatever decade of my life, you know, nurses tend to write about their profession in a really proactive way. They tend to study themselves really, really well. They tend to look at their workforce dynamics. They tend to look at their career trajectories. They tend to focus on things that empower them as a profession. And I commend them for that. That is exactly what you should be doing. And I think it's those areas where you need to reach a critical mass of publication in order to pull off some of that stuff. If all you're doing is scrambling to sort of make ends meet, so to speak, academically, if you're just trying to get one publication out because your boss thinks you should, you're never going to do that deep work that really analyzes a profession that really pushes it forward. So I think that the type of work you do matters as much as the quantity. I've noticed that as well. That That is a good point, that nursing is maybe exceptional compared to all the other professions of making sure that they're doing studies on their own profession. I, it's, it's an interesting point that I maybe hadn't thought of. To get back to your actual question, what can we do to improve this? Well, in order to improve it, we need to understand it. And so what are some of the barriers that prevent us from publishing? I mean, I think they make up a very long list. Um, you know, we've all can point to time as being the reason we don't do a lot of things. I think that uh, is in particular, PAs suffer from not having time, both protected time, but just extra time in general, because for the most part, we are hired to do a specific job, whether that's a clinical job, working in a hospital, a clinic, wherever, or whether that's a teaching job and we're hired by a university. Unlike many other professors at universities, our salaries are most often justified by tuition dollars, and we are most often expected to keep the lights on at the program, to keep butts in seats, to keep the course moving forward at a breakneck pace, because that's what PA education is. So there's very little extra time. There's very little leisurely time to work on projects, to get creative, to collaborate, to have those sort of back hallway conversations that often lead to great ideas. And so time and protected time is a huge problem. But we also lack formal training. Most of us were in programs coming from undergrad that focused on, you know, basic science stuff so that we could pass the GRE or the MCAT or whatever. Doesn't exactly foster a lot of good communication skills. 
we then go into clinical training programs where, again, communication skills and writing skills and research skills are, if they're even included, they're not the highlight. And so we come out of that with a lack of skills, a lack of formal training, a lack of confidence in those skills. And all of that ends up with a group of people who maybe rightly so don't have a ton of grant money sitting around waiting for them because who's going to put up a bunch of grant money if people aren't using it, if people aren't writing and publishing. So it's this tangled web of overlapping problems that compound each other and make it kind of a deep hole to get out of. So, I mean, easy answer is, how do you make it better? Just fix all those things. But hard to do. Very hard to do. Um, I think that, you know, part of it is that there's a lot of interventions that focus on people who are already very qualified. So if you look at things that are put in place to bolster you know, publication among PAs. I, I'll go back to PAs. I know your audience isn't all PAs, but I'm a PA. So uh, you look at interventions that are there to bolster PAs. Most of them are going to be awarded to people who are already doing a good job because what you do to get a grant or to get an award or to get whatever, a higher position at your, at your institution that might allow you some protected time. And I know because I've won some of these things. What you do is you apply, you give them your CV, you tell them everything you've done up to this point, you tell them why you're the best use of that money or resource or whatever, and then they give it to you. They give it to the most qualified person. So the person who's already kind of kicking butt gets a little bit extra boost. So the people who are already going to publish probably are going to get a little extra money and do it a little bit easier. But all of those people who are struggling, who are never going to publish, they're not even in the running for a lot of that stuff. And so instead of bringing up the 50% of people who have zero publications, we are continuing to reward, honestly, people like me who are going to publish anyways, who have already published, who kind of know what they're doing. And that's not exactly going to move the needle. So that's a great segue into the conference side of this. So within your article, once again, that inspired this conversation, you talked about how conferences are really great, you know, we'll call it maybe low-hanging fruit or, or really good initial entry into medical writing. And really, in my opinion, I've done this, and maybe as we talk about it, I can share my experiences with it, but it's been a wonderful opportunity to build the CV, to establish myself as a, a key opinion leader in psychiatry. But talk to me about how we can leverage conferences for professional development within the context of writing or developing um, educational material. Yeah, I've been writing about writing for a while, and it's only recently that I've been like, whoa, why am I not talking about conferences more? Because first of all, I love conferences. I go to the AAPA National Conference. It's the big PA conference every year. I think I've gone like 10 or 11 years without missing one, pandemic aside. And I love them. They're awesome just in and of themselves. They're great events. Um, and if they can also help us move our careers forward, that seems like a win-win to me. So I think there's a lot of things that conferences do that other avenues don't. Um, they also fold in really well to some of the things that I like to focus on for people who are struggling to write. For instance, uh, starting with a small project, I think, is very important for someone who has never done this kind of stuff before. I think most of people get really excited about the impact they want to make on the world, and they think, I have to go and swing this bat as hard as I possibly can, and I need to crack a home run right out of the gate or else what am I even doing with my time and they get very excited and they set out to do that and they realize 
that is a monumental task that I'm not exactly equipped to do. And they lose momentum. They get discouraged. They set that down and they never pick it up again. And that's a shame. And that's how you get people going 10 years into an academic career without publishing. And that's a, a solution to that is buried in this conference format because conferences in general, because of the format of them, because they're these limited events that you have to show up to and that you leave and they eventually just evaporate into the air after you leave Nashville or Vegas or New Orleans or wherever you happen to be, like the alcohol that everyone's been drinking, it just evaporates at the end of it. But that means that there are these awesome pockets for little projects buried throughout these conferences. In fact, you can't really walk into a conference with a big project. And what I mean by little projects, I mean things that are small upfront investments that don't require a lot of skill necessarily that can give you a quick payoff and that you can relatively instantly get some feedback on. And you can do that in the writing world. It's just so much harder. I mean, what we're doing right now, this is very quickly gratifying, right? This is a podcast. People are going to listen to it pretty shortly after we, we record it. And uh, it's fun and it's easy. But it doesn't necessarily have a lot of academic merit in the eyes of a lot of formal institutions. Conferences, on the other hand, are almost universally regarded as academic events, even if they are in New Orleans or Las Vegas or Honolulu or whatever. So if you're able to put together a small little abstract that gets accepted to a conference and you fly out there and you present it, it's a small investment that has a lot of academic, reputable clout to it. Um, but you also have tons of these other benefits that cascade along with it, too, that we can kind of get into. Yeah, I, I love it. I think one of the things that I've done in my career with you know, relative success is I kind of think of it as vertical integration of my projects, where if I'm doing something, podcast, let's use the podcast as an example. If John and I are doing a ton of research to put together an educational episode, ideally, we want to use that intellectual property as many times as we can and build as many lines on our CV as we can. So very often we'll take an episode and say, okay, is this something that we can present at a conference as a presentation? Is this something that we can potentially convert into an editorial journal article? Is this something that we can do as a poster? Or more simply, is this something that we maybe hold on to and down the road we will repurpose as a CME event and then just distribute and produce it ourselves? So every time we're looking at these types of career development episodes for the podcast, we're also thinking about vertical integration or how we can reuse all that intellectual property many times over. And I think with conferences, that's such a great opportunity. There's so many benefits where you can have a presentation, but maybe take all the work that you put into that and then write it up as a journal or as a uh, as a poster for something different. So there's a lot of opportunity not only to to maybe do these small projects, but then have those projects grow. And I think you even mentioned that in your article that a lot of times these little projects end up growing into bigger ones as you continue to put the work in and kind of build on what you've already had. Yeah. In a lot of ways, these are essentially idea incubators where you can come in with something that, I mean, I'm kind of pulling the curtain back. I don't know if I'm, you can come in with half-baked ideas sometimes. And mm -hmm. that's okay uh, because, again, the upfront investment is so small. I would never advise anyone to half-bake a manuscript submission to a journal because that requires so much writing time 
so much editing time, so much dead time in the submission turnaround process that I would say, no, 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 you need this thing to be rock solid. And that is the advice I give when I advise people on this. But if you're submitting a two or 300 word abstract to a conference, I'm okay throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. And if it gets accepted, because those are often peer reviewed, I am one of the reviewers for some of these conferences, they're peer reviewed, they get instant feedback often, because even if you get rejected from a conference, the good ones, they give you comments as to why. But if you get accepted, now you can start to workshop. In fact, you usually have a few months lead time between acceptance and presentation where you can say, oh, wow, this I have something here. Maybe I need to go and shore this up. Maybe I need to actually polish this thing. But you have the time to do it. You have the affirmation that it's worth something. And then you get to walk in the door with something relatively novel because hey, it's pretty new. It's, it's new to you. It's definitely new to your audience. And so I think, yeah, that idea that you can kind of develop it as you go along, workshop it a little bit. I mean, I've done that. I'll admit I've, I've submitted presentations to conferences that didn't exist. And I was like, if they accept this, I have six months to make this thing awesome. I know I can. I know I have something here. I'm not just fabricating things. I like to think I'm not a con man, but I'm not going to put a two hour workshop together unless it gets accepted. And once it does, I know I have the background, the information, the skill. Maybe I've done this in other settings, but I get to make something kind of new and fresh and try it out with an audience. And if it falls on its face, I mean, it's kind of low risk too. Because again, like we're all going to leave this venue and no one's going to care. There's no evidence. <laughs> it's like a wedding. No one remembers whether the steak was cooked good at a wedding, right? Yeah. And, and your steak is probably going to be better than the average wedding meal, I think. Because, again, you you have time to, to put into this ahead of time as well. Yeah, I, I've had a similar experience. So I would echo for the listeners that don't be intimidated by just putting together an abstract if the conference is something that you believe that it's within your area of expertise or an area that you have a deep knowledge. I've done that many times where I've just thrown stuff at the wall. I've stopped actually doing it a little bit more recently because now I'm at the point of life where time is really, really constrained because of professional obligations, but then also even at home. I actually just had one, um, the Colorado PA Association, I threw something in. They're like, oh, we'd love to have you come out. And I was like, yeah, that's it's probably a whole weekend in Colorado sounds great, but probably not something I can swing. But yeah, I think if you have a topic that you know that you can you know, kind of backfill it, go for it. Because a 200-word abstract, you can submit those to a lot of these state organizations, a lot of these conferences, and just see who has interest. Yeah, and the truth is you're probably going to do this stuff more than once, I'll say, outside of research. Uh, we should probably clarify a little bit what we're even talking about. Some of these conferences accept only research. Some conferences are research conferences. Um, I don't actually spend a lot of time at those because I, I think they're a little more niche and uh, they're often... A little bit of a hardcore crowd. Uh, people who are doing the research often show up and listen to and read the research of other people. Um, I tend to go to conferences just because professional conferences are like this. I tend to go to conferences that are a mix of research, maybe case reports or or sort of n equals one type, um, you know, studies, if you will. But are also a lot of educational material a lot of new ideas that aren't necessarily data-based, meaning they didn't go out and collect data, but they have a new methodology, a new way to teach something, a new way to communicate something. And so it's a little bit of a uh, cornucopia, I guess, of different types of content. 
And that means that when you're thinking about submitting things, it could be research, it could be a case report, but it could just be, hey, I'm really great at explaining the approach to abdominal pain in the pediatric population. And I'm going to go up there for an hour and really do an excellent job of communicating that in a way that other people aren't. And so there's a lot of different options. You can reuse most of those different types of content. Many conferences will restrict the original research side of it. Um, if you're smart, you can present research in different ways at different conferences. But often, uh, once something is published, people kind of consider it a, a settled issue. Um, so you won't recycle that necessarily in exactly the same way. But what you can start to do is incorporate that into your next talk on that topic, reference your own research and say, oh, yeah, so what we know, because my team did the study on it, is X, Y, and Z. And it becomes a pretty strong flex. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of ways to really count things twice. And so you can kind of improve and tweak as you go along, even conference to conference, year to year, state to state, however you like to do it. Um, but there's just more opportunities out there than you think. You just have to actually sometimes get on a plane and go, and that might be the problem. Yeah, for sure. Especially because a lot of times, at least in my experience, these conference presentations aren't exactly going to break the bank in terms of honoraria. So the yeah. the financial reimbursement may be minimal or maybe just enough to cover your costs, but it's still, it's a weekend away. It's a great opportunity for networking. And the key, I think, is that hopefully these types of things will build your CV and then prepare you for that next step in your career, which is where you would see that compensation. So let's assume that we've, everybody that's listening to this, we've we've sold them on the idea that conferences are a great opportunity to plus up their CV, to really take a dive into the medical writing or publication side of things. What tips or advice would you have for someone that maybe has never published before, is listening to this and is getting super charged up by the idea of getting involved in a conference? What would be, in your opinion, the first steps if they don't know where to start with this? It kind of goes back to my first steps of writing or, or anything else. And, you know, I think that there are plenty of ways to go out and check boxes and get lines on your CV. Um, if you just want to go to that conference in New Orleans and present something and get your whatever plane ticket paid for or whatever, you can do that. But my advice is to connect your work to something that means something to you because at the end of the day, you will spend more hours at home on your laptop or in a coffee shop or up late at night working on this than you will in front of a cheering crowd. So there is a, uh, a loneliness and there is a frustration that often occurs halfway through a project. And if you have a connection to it, it's much easier to push through and see a project to the end if you know I care about this material. I care about where this is going. I really need people to hear this. So finding a connection to your work, finding a bigger impact is very, very important before you set out. That's probably my universal first tip. Beyond that, I, I think narrowing down, getting really focused, zeroing in on something so that it has one main point is, is really important too. Really new writers, new presenters, they want to walk in and say, hey, in an hour, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about reconstructive plastic surgery. And there's just no way. It's an entire field. That's massive. I mean, you couldn't even begin. And even if you did cover it, how well are you going to cover it in an hour? So focusing a problem, drilling it down so that you have one main topic, one main point is really important. Uh, I think a focused talk, a focused presentation, a focused written article is almost always stronger than something that is 
a mile wide and only an inch deep. Uh, so that, those are kind of the starting point. Um, but from a practical standpoint, one of the things you need to do is figure out your your venue, your audience. And I don't mean venue as in the convention center. I mean, what's the type of conference that you're going to? What do they accept? Because that might start to spark ideas as to the angle you'll take on a project. A lot of people might think that you can only present research at a conference, for instance. But if you go on the website of AMEE, which is an international medical education conference that goes all over the world, you'll see so many different types of presentation formats. It'll blow your mind. Some of them are 15 minutes long. Some of them put your slides on a timer and you have to talk at the speed of your slides and they move whether you like it or not. Some of them are group related. Some of them are panels. So there's all these different things. And if you didn't know they existed, how would you ever start to formulate an idea around them? So sometimes once you kind of know generally, okay, I really, really want to have an impact on health disparities related to hypertension in this specific population. I know I care about that. I'm focusing now. Now, step outside of yourself and see what are the different places that I can present this? What do those formats look like? And you might spark some additional ideas. Yeah, I'd like to plug state organizations. I think uh, it's a really underutilized opportunity for people to get into either presenting or posters or publication. I'm the industry relations chair for the New York PA Association. And our annual conference is quite incredible. I mean, we get about 400 attendees, so it's a rather large conference. And we have a poster session, and there's some really good, high-quality posters, but then also opportunities for presentations. I think last year there was maybe 50 different presenters. So there's a lot of opportunity there. If you're doing it at a state level, then usually it's going to be hopefully you know a drive away, so you're not going to incur as many travel costs. So if someone is looking to get into conferences and do some level of publication or presence, I would really encourage you to look at your state organization and see if they have an annual conference. That might be a good starting point. Yeah, I love state conferences. I love uh, specialty-specific conferences. Anything that focuses the audience a little bit more. Like you said, there's great opportunities. They are often need people. So you're kind of doing a service to your state organization too by showing up and providing this really good content. Some of them have resources and they can pay your expenses or they can pay your honorary. That's kind of nice. And also, you know, we haven't really talked much about how great conferences are for networking, but networking nationally is always a, a great idea. Networking within your state is essential if you're trying to do anything locally or regionally. So, yeah, those more focused, a uh, little more niche conferences, whether that's geographic or whether that's specialty, um, can have payoff in a big way. And so I highly encourage people to look outside of just the big national conferences. Look at what's going on around you because you might find some gems. Absolutely. What I'd like to do to to wrap up this topic is maybe both of us can share a personal story about how we've utilized conferences to leverage up our career. If we want to use that term, it almost sounds corny. But do you have a personal example, maybe early on when you were still getting into this, or even more recently, if there's something that you were able to do that you saw as a, a big step forward in your career that came from involvement in a conference? Tons of things for me, because I, I do so much and go to so many of these things. Um, I think a couple of big breakthroughs for me, going to a small state conference and presenting the topic on writing and publication and thinking, ah, oh, this is going to be embarrassing. I'm going to be at this hotel room in this ballroom by myself for an hour talking to an empty room like, dang it. Well, 
I'll still show up. I'll still do this because I'm a trooper. Like I, I'm a professional. I will talk to an empty room and walking to a room that was a sidetrack from the main conference. So competing with the most popular presentations and filling the room on a writing talk at a small state conference. It was a huge wake up call to me that this was something that people want. This is something that people need. People stayed after to talk to me. People followed up with me over email and social media. And I was like, whoa, if if I can go, you know, drive this whole distance to this this kind of smaller venue and still get this kind of response for this topic, that means something. So talk about like validation for an idea. That was incredibly validating. I had done it nationally. I had done it, you know, at these bigger conferences where you expect to get a turnout. But seeing that everywhere I go, there's someone interested in this, that was a huge, huge breakthrough for me. Yeah, I think on my end, the one that sticks out to me is, I think it was a couple years ago already, but I gave a presentation at a national conference, a psychiatry conference, and it was down in Austin, Texas. So it was great to begin with already because it was, I think, February or March. So it was a good opportunity to escape the Buffalo winter and get down into the warm weather. But I gave the talk. The talk went great. Within the audience, there was actually several members of a pharmaceutical industry for other companies that I have a consulting relationship with. And after the talk, that stimulated conversation with myself and that that company, a completely different company than why I was down there, and ultimately culminated in them asking me to be on the faculty for their upcoming year where I was training the speakers to do the promotional pharmaceutical talks. And that all stemmed from them seeing me present for a different topic at this conference. So as you said earlier, the networking opportunities that come from these conferences are so immense where, you know, even though the pay may not be great, you may be incurring personal expense to go very often. These are opportunities to to showcase your skill set and leverage that into greater opportunities. And I think to to just tie it in, maybe in conclusion, like you said earlier, if you're looking to get into involvement in conferences, make sure you have a plan. If you are you know, just kind of firing off things in different directions and maybe trying to still figure out where your area of expertise is or where your skill set really lies, you may work really, really hard, but not work in a focused manner. I think if you sit down and say, okay, I work in orthopedics, I really am fascinated with joint replacement. So I'm going to make joint replacement my thing. And then you just continue to slowly become more visible as the joint replacement person, you know, through publication, through posters, through conference presentations. The hope and expectation is that maybe that then leads to an MSL job, you know, in a medical device industry or you know, things like that, whatever your end goal is. But be intentional. Make sure that you're using conference presentations as a tool to get you to your end goal instead of using the presentations to try and see you know, maybe what pops up and what sparks your interest. I think if you have a plan, if you're intentional, you're going to have much more success. Yeah. And it's okay if you don't have a you know hard and fast plan. It's okay to show up to a conference and information gather and walk around the poster hall, see what people are doing, go to lectures that you might not have gone to because they're not necessarily your clinical area, but maybe they're interesting and off the beaten path and might spark something for you. So you can go and kind of seek inspiration at these things, even if you're not a speaker. Attendees get a lot out of it. And then next year, you're ready to go. Or maybe six months from now, there's a different conference. So I, I do think it's okay to look before you leap, so to speak, and uh, you know get inspired by a conference. That is some of what you're paying for when you go to a conference. 
Yes, totally agree. I've done that multiple times where I've attended conferences just as an attendee. And every time I, I walk away feeling inspired, I walk away feeling you know ready to take on the world from a clinical perspective. It's always something where I get super excited and usually come away with lots of ideas of things to implement in my practice. So let's transition over, Harrison. At the end of each show, we always like to talk about some personal items. And the reason we do this is that healthcare is all-consuming. And although we're a career development podcast, we also want to make sure that we're retaining some aspect of our humanity. So not to put you on the spot, but do you have anything fun that you are you know, reading, drinking, any upcoming trips, anything fun or interesting that you've got coming up this summer? Summer in D.C. is always fun. Uh, you know, a good friend of mine's in a band here. And so uh, you know, supporting my friends and all of their outside activities. Like we, you said, our identities go beyond our jobs. So I think, you know, it's been really fun to to kind of get outside of myself in, in D.C. I, I recommend D.C. for anyone who wants to visit, although it's basically a swamp. The The big thing on my agenda is is welcoming my niece to the world this year and uh, trying to, to find as many milestones with her that I can kind of, uh, you know, get FaceTime with, uh, both figuratively and literally. Uh, so getting back to Florida and uh, not to tie it back into the core topic, but hey, if if a conference in Florida wants to pay for my plane ticket to go back and see my niece, I'm, I'm always down for that. And I may or may not be doing that at least once this year. So <laughs> so uh, seeing, you know, visiting my family in a uh, in a place with a lot of convention centers is is kind of a, a nice uh, bonus to some of the stuff, both personally and uh, professionally. Um, but yeah, I mean. I've been I've been trying to force myself to uh, do a little bit more reading of fiction, and uh, do a little bit more writing of things that aren't necessarily medical related. And so I'm really happy that some of my personal writing is finally getting some attention. And I have uh, some some writing in a literary magazine coming up uh, called Hippocampus Magazine, but it's not a medical magazine. They just happen to have that uh, happen to have that that title. Uh, so you know, kind of feeding the soul a little bit through some of those things that don't necessarily have a, a clinical focus is is pretty important too. I, I, I'm still trying to uh, be an adult as well, and I'm trying to get a condo that I recently bought put together and, and decorated and learning how to keep plants alive. That's been a big a big part of my, <laughs> my last six months. It's, I've failed a little bit here and there, but I have one living plant still in my in my condo, so I'm proud of that. Excellent. Well, we're actually going to be down in D.C. next month, so you may have to hit me up with a dinner recommendation. Funny story with that. This is not going to count as my personal item, but uh, an offside. Last year we went down. We were going to the Outer Banks. D.C. is about halfway, so we stopped in D.C., and we had the brilliant idea that it would be fun to sightsee in the middle of August in D.C. with, a at the time, four kids under eight years old. And it was a disaster. Yeah, it did not think that one through. They they did okay. We we walked around. We saw the White House, and then by the time we made it to the Washington Monument, the kids were melting. They were just dying. the The toddler was laying in the middle of the sidewalk, refusing to move. So we ducked into the Smithsonian for some air conditioning, and they revived a little bit. But we realized that uh, we were maybe overly ambitious for how hot and humid it is in D.C. with young kids. Yeah, I spend enough time down on the National Mall at all the monuments seeing all of those field trips to know that <laughs> I would not take a group of children to D.C. lightly. So uh, kudos to you for surviving, apparently. I... Barely. I mean, barely. There may have been some level of child abuse, but yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Yeah, I mean, the heat will do this. <laughs> <laughs> we were dragging them along. No, you have to come. This year, we're going to be a little bit more tempered. We're still going to do... DC and just use that as the halfway point. It just makes sense to to break up the trip, but we're going to roll in mid-afternoon, 
drive right to the Air and Space Museum now that it's renovated, park there, get right into the air conditioning, spend maybe two hours there, and then hit dinner, and then the next day go go on to the Outer Banks. So we're going to be maybe a little bit more tempered in our expectations of what the kids can handle. Yeah, yeah, that was a hard requirement for me after experiencing the pandemic in D.C., uh, to have a place with a rooftop pool and a balcony so that whether the heat or the cold, I could sort of moderate myself one way or the other and, and not necessarily live in a, uh, a, an oven or a uh, freezer. Absolutely. So even though I guess I could count that as my personal item, I think I'm going to use my personal item to talk about next week because it's almost in line with what we're doing here. Next week, I'm going to Knoxville, Tennessee to give a uh, educational presentation on behalf of a pharmaceutical company. And one of my little projects that I have is I want to do the highest points in all 50 states. So I like to, to mountain climb. I like to hike. And on the East Coast, it's more hiking. On the West, it's more mountain climbing. But so in Tennessee, I'm going to hit Clingman's Dome, which is the third highest uh, mountain in the East Coast, east of the Mississippi. It's not that exciting because you can drive up to the summit. But because you can drive up, what I'm going to do is I'm getting up at 4 a.m. and I'm going to drive there and try and catch the sunrise. And it actually works perfect because then I have a 10.30 a.m. flight home. So I'll, I'll get up early, catch the sunrise, and then make it to the airport in time for my flight. So all of that is uh, it's a fun little trip that I'm able to do because I'm going down to give a presentation. So you know, yet another opportunity where uh, some fun career stuff because of different uh, publication, presentation, things like that. Harrison, before we leave, I want to give you an opportunity to plug your plug your stuff. I know you've got a website and you've been really working hard to try and make this type of information accessible to everybody that may have an interest in getting into medical writing. Do you want to tell our listeners where they can find you? Yes, uh, it's very easy to find a lot of my writing resources at harrisonreadwriting.com. That's my name, H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N-R-E-E-D, writing.com. I put a lot of articles up there that I think are good entry points uh, to, you know, publication and, and just helpful stuff in general. Um, you can download some resources. That is, everything is free, um, but you can get on my mailing list at that website as well. And I tend to just send out things that I wouldn't necessarily post on the website, just like thoughts I have, resources, limited time stuff that's not going to, you know, age on a website. Like, hey, this conference is coming up. Maybe you should apply to it. Uh, so I do that. So so join the mailing list. I, I don't like spam or I, I don't give your information to anyone. I, it's just it's just strictly for me to send things to an interested audience because I know not everyone cares about this stuff, but the people who care about it really need the resources. Um, so I, I'm also on social media at Harrison Reed PA on Twitter as long as it's alive and uh, Instagram. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. You know, I'm on all the all the typical socials. I have a YouTube channel, Harrison Reed Writing. Um, so I, I try to make myself available. I try to make these resources available. Um, and, you know, if you like it and want to share it with a friend or that's, you know, that's great, too. Excellent. And we'll make sure to link as many of those opportunities to get a hold of you as we can in the show description, but then also on the website as well. Well, Harrison, this was a great topic. I'm, I'm so thankful you were able to come on. I Before we started recording, I told you I've been a longtime lurker. I've been familiar with your work for quite a while, so I'm glad that we were able to connect. I think one of the coolest things with this show is the networking that comes from it, the ability to, to meet people that are just doing some really cool stuff in different spaces. Thank you, listeners. This is White Coats of the Round Table. We are a healthcare podcast that discusses career development, non-clinical careers such as medical writing, and burnout prevention. If you like what you hear, consider giving us a follow. 
even leave us a review. If you don't like what you hear, definitely don't review us. Until next time, this is Mike Asbach with Harrison Reed. Everyone have a great week. Thank you.